Amen. Thank you, team. And uh, by the way, isn't it great to have Rachel back from her internship, too? Yes. Uh, if you catch her in the lobby after, make sure you ask her about her summer adventures. Uh, we are glad that she is back with us. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, please open it now to Matthew seven thirteen to 14. Matthew seven thirteen to 14. We're coming to the end of our fairly long, uh, fairly slow walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in fact, we, uh, we are at the end. This, this is the end, uh, not the end of the series. We've got a couple weeks left because uh, Jesus has a kind of extended landing for the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's no new content from this point forward. Uh, verses 13 to 28, if you're looking at it in your Bible in chapter 7, uh, represent the conclusion or the call to response. And uh, so Pastor Matt last week walked us through the summary of the ethical portion of the Sermon on the Mount in terms of the uh, golden rule. And now here, Jesus is bringing this in for a landing. He begins to call for a response. And uh, in this section, he works through a variety of binary options. Uh, He talks about a good road and a bad road. He talks about a good tree and a bad tree. He talks about a wise man and a foolish man. Uh, If you just scan that section with your eyes, you'll notice there are not a lot of third options in this closing section. Jesus is not really a third option kind of guy. Uh, We don't like uh, these kinds of binary choices in our culture. Uh, We tend to uh, prefer nuance. Uh, We like shades. Uh, We want a spectrum of options. But Jesus doesn't give us a spectrum of options. He gives us this or that. And so some of us are going to find this conclusion, uh, this whole section, a little jarring. And that's okay. Um, We don't read the Sermon on the Mount to be confirmed in our modern prejudices. We read the Sermon on the Mount to hear again the beautiful tune. So I hope you have your Bible open by now to Matthew 7. I'll be reading verses 13 to 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide And the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, while you have your Bibles open in front of you, keep your Bibles open in front of you today. We're going to play a little sword drill. I want you to turn about 20 or 25 pages to the right in your Bible, and uh, you should get to Luke 13. I want you to hear Luke 13, 22 to 30. Now, as you hear that, you're going to say, well, that kind of sounds like what you just read, although not exactly. And that's exactly right. Uh, Jesus recycled parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want you to hear that carefully. Don't, don't get scared by that. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount represents the quintessence of Jesus' teaching. And so when he was in other contexts, he would, of course, repeat parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Like, and by the way, pastors do this all the time. If, if you take your time and very carefully write and craft a sermon addressing a particular topic, and then, you know, two weeks later, someone in the lobby asks you a question on the fly, like, hey, pastor, you know, how does perseverance of the saints work? Chances are you're going to more or less regurgitate a, chap, a paragraph from your sermon, right? And then you're going to supplement it with some, some other casual illustrations. That's exactly how it was with Jesus. Here we have uh, more of a personal encounter, but he repeats or recycles a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, but then he gives some extra content. So that's extraordinarily useful. All right, listen to this. Luke 13, 22 to 30. 
He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, so here's like a casual conversation. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, right? Like we went to church the odd time and, and, and we listened to a, to a podcast. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. All right, so that's, that's obviously related and expanded content. So we're very interested in that. That feels like a director's cut, doesn't it? Just a slightly longer, more detailed version of the same teaching. So zooming out, I want to look at this, this content, this body of teaching relating to the narrow gate, and I want to try and understand it by asking a couple of organizing questions. Number one, what is the narrow gate? What are we talking about here? Uh, number two, what is the way that leads to destruction? Uh, Jesus is a classic antithetical teacher. He often helps you understand apples by explaining how they're not oranges, right? That's antithetical teaching. Okay, and then three, will only a few be saved? Let's begin with the first question. What is the narrow gate? Obviously, it's a figure of speech. That's, that's a, it's a metaphor, right? And uh, it's one that Jesus used fairly often, and that's helpful. So again, let's play a little more sword drill. Turn another 20 or 25 pages in your Bible over to John 10. Of course, if you've got a large print Bible, that's 600 pages to the right. Fine print Bible, it's about 20, 25. All right, John 10. By the way, I hope you don't mind all this uh, page flipping. It's just good. Um, the best way to understand what Jesus means in one passage is to compare it with things he said in other passages, isn't it? It's called using the Bible to interpret the Bible. That's what you want to do. All right, so listen to what he says in John 10. I'm going to read you the first six verses there. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, by the way, if you were a King James person back in the day, do you remember verily, verily? Verily, verily. Anytime Jesus says verily, verily, or truly, truly, he's saying, now listen up. Listen up. I'm going to tell you something really important. Now, I suppose everything in the Bible is really important. But if Jesus says, now, come here, then it's very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So here in John 10, Jesus uses the figure of the door to represent coming at things the right way. 
Anyone who tries to hop the hedge, hop over the hedge, uh, generally speaking, is some kind of hooligan or ne'er-do-well, right? Uh, But if you come at something from the front door, then you have every right to be there. You can test this theory later today. Uh, If you walk up to your front door and just very casually put your hand on the door and walk in, chances are no police officer is going to stop you and question you. But if a police officer happens to be driving through your neighborhood and they see you with one leg in through a ground floor window, you better have some ID in your pocket, right? You understand that. Because if you have every right to be there, then you're coming in through the front door. But people who try to come in through the side are generally doing something they ought not to be doing. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 1 to 5 there. But the disciples were having trouble with that figure of speech, we learn in verse 6. So he twists it a little bit. He turns it just a little bit. Jesus often did this. He uses figures of speech in overlapping, related ways. And so now he says something slightly different. Look at verses 7 and 9. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. All right, so putting that all together here, Jesus is saying, you want to come at the kingdom of heaven the right way. You want to walk right up the front walkway. You want to knock on the front door, right? You want to do that as opposed to trying to sneak in through a window. You've got to approach things the right way or you'll be treated like a thief, a hooligan, and a 'er ne'er-do-well, right? Now, of course, Bible readers know that Jesus is the right way. There's an old saying, uh, pastors kick around sayings like this. It's a useful saying. You can use it too. Uh, there are many ways to Jesus, but there is only one way to God. Have you ever heard that before? It's, it's a way of saying, you can, so imagine a house, the celestial city, the king's palace, whatever you like. There's a nice straight walkway there with a fence. You, you can, any way you like, you can come at, at the entrance to that little walkway there. You can come from the east, you can come from the west, you can come from the north, you can come from the south, right? You, there are many ways to come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus when you're a kid. Put up your hand if you, if you came to Jesus before you were 16 years old. All right, good. Praise the Lord. Welcome. Uh, put up your hand if you came to Jesus after the age of 40. Well, a bunch of you too. God bless you. Right. So you can come young, you can come old, you can come easy, you can come hard, you can come any way you like, but understand, so there's many ways to come to Jesus, but there's only one way to come to God. You better not try to come any other way than right down straight that walk, that walkway. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Of course, he said that himself. John 14, he said, I am the way. That's pretty clear. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All right, so that's our our metaphor, fully explored and understood. The narrow gate refers to the correct way of salvation. You have to approach the Father through a right relationship with the Son if you want to be admitted to the kingdom of heaven. I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, John Bunyan's little book, The Pilgrim's Progress, is an ever-ready source for illustrations. It's intended to be. He wrote a little allegory uh, trying his best to describe sort of all the twists and turns and all the ups and downs of the Christian life, and uh, so you you can appeal to that allegory for understanding as you're making your way through your journey. It's called Pilgrim's Progress, as I said. 
Uh, in it, Bunyan tells the story of a pilgrim named Christian who is fleeing the city of destruction, trying to make his way to the celestial city. All, all of the symbolism is on the bottom shelf. If you're thinking, you know, gee, I didn't take a literature class in university, that's okay. Uh, these, these are all bottom shelf uh, metaphors here. Now, as part of the story, Christian gets lost. Uh, he takes a couple of wrong turns. He tries a few things that, that end up being cul-de-sacs, roads that lead to nowhere. At one point, he falls into a bog. Uh, but then finally... Uh, right when he's despairing that he'll never really get going on this journey, he meets a man named Evangelist. As I said, these, these are bottom shelf metaphors here. He meets a man named Evangelist who points him toward the wicket gate. Now, wicket uh, is not a word we use a lot anymore in English. Uh, most of us think it's just a mispronunciation of wicked. It is not. Uh, the only place we use the word wicket still today is at Blue Jay Games. Uh, if you buy your tickets ahead of time and they're sitting there waiting for you, where do you go? You go to the ticket wicket. And uh, they, that's, that's a thing. That's a real thing. I wasn't just being funny there. Uh, there's a thing called the ticket wicket. And they pass the tickets through the wicket. Uh, and it's, it's a, it literally is just a, a narrow gate. That's, that's what the word wicket means. It means narrow gate. So Bunyan tells the story of Pilgrim, a Christian, making his way through the wicket gate this way. He says, in time, he found the wicket gate. Over the small, narrow gate was written, knock, and the door will be opened to you. He knocked, saying, may I now enter here? Will he within open to sorry me, though I have been an undeserving rebel? Then shall I not fail to sing his everlasting praise on high. At last, a serious man came to the gate, I am goodwill. Who knocks? From where have you come? What do you want? I am a poor burdened sinner, he said. I come from the city of destruction, but I am going to the celestial city so that I might be delivered from the wrath to come. I am told this gate is the way. Are you willing to let me in? With all my heart, goodwill said, opening the gate and yanking Christian inside. Why did you do that, sputtered Christian. There is a strong castle near here where the devil Beelzebub is the captain. He and his army shoot arrows at those who come to this gate in the hope they die before they enter. Oh, thank you for your quick action, Christian praised Goodwill. Anyway, the story goes on from there. You can read about that, but that is the story of his passage through the narrow gate of salvation. Notice that he meets a man named Goodwill who yanks him, who pulls him through the gate. That represents God's grace in salvation. None of us pass through the narrow gate without help from God. Isn't that true? So it is all of grace, and yet we must seek and we must knock even as we are sought and even as we are helped. So first and foremost, we need to understand that the narrow gate represents the right way of salvation. You've got to start here. There's many ways to get here, but you've got to start there. This is where it all begins. This is Christianity 101. And you might say, Pastor, everybody knows that. Uh, that's, that's very basic. Well, you'd be surprised. Uh, I... I we did a little deacon's meeting yesterday, deacon's breakfast, and we talked about how when you meet with folks, particularly uh, 
older folks uh, in the last lap of life, so to speak, it's important to remind them of the gospel because it's easy to forget, and it's easy to switch back to default religion. There's a, there's a religion that's actually hardwired into your fallen flesh that the gospel is the antidote to, and it's easy to forget that. I, I told the story, I said one, one time, I, a couple years ago, I went, visited a, a, a man from our church, a man that had been in our church before I got here. He was in his last lap of life. And we had a, we had a chat and we had a talk. And at one point I said to him, and I, won't, I obviously won't tell you who it is, and, and I believe the brother is saved, and so make sure you're hearing this the right way. But I, I said to the brother, I said, um, you know, if you were to die tonight, and he died actually a couple days later, I said, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you why he should let you into his kingdom, I'm just curious, brother, what would you say? And he said, well, you know, I, Pastor, I've always loved the church. Um, my wife and I, we've been very faithful there. And, and, uh, and then he listed off a number of areas in the church where he had, he had served. And I said, now, brother, let me just stop you. I said, because I, I know that you wouldn't say that those things saved you, would you? And he said, oh, no, 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 I, I, Jesus saved me. And I said, okay, well, brother, then just say Jesus. I said, I, I don't know exactly if it happens that way. I don't, I don't, I don't know if when you die, you, you wake up and you stand before God and he says, you know, why should I let you? I don't, I don't know if that happens. But if it does, I said, brother, don't give God your resume. Just say Jesus. And he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. And then, and then we spoke for a few minutes about what it was that Jesus had done to secure his salvation. We talked about his, his perfect life and obedience. We talked about his sacrificial death on the cross. We talked about him rising from the dead. We talked about him standing before the presence of God, even right now, praying for all of his people. I said, you just say Jesus. If you can't get anything out, just say Jesus. Say it over and over again. I think that's okay. Uh, but if you got anything else in, you, in your mind in that moment, talk about these things. Because there's no other way into the celestial city but through the gate named Jesus. So there's a narrow gate. And beyond that, there is a narrow way. The way of Jesus is described by Jesus in particular ways. He, he says that it is a narrow way. It is restrictive and confining. D.A. Carson talks about that. He says God's way is not spacious but confining. There's no room for, for me to set my opinions against the Lord's. No room to set goals in any way at cross purposes to His. No room to form attachments which vie for the central place the Lord Jesus must have. Closed quote. That's true, isn't it? That's what we mean, the narrow way. There's not a lot of wiggle room for you if you want to follow Jesus. It's kind of His way or the highway, isn't it? In fact, Jesus says that in, in Luke's summary of the Sermon on the Mount. I love comparing Luke's summary and Matthew's summary. It's fascinating. They, they each remembered and, and, and under the Spirit's guidance preserved different things. So you get this kind of bonus line. Luke 6, 46, at one point Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's a good question. That's a good question. Jesus is like, do you think this is a democracy? Do you think we're going to vote on stuff? He didn't know about Baptists. They came later. Do you, do you think we're going to negotiate? <laughs> no, Jesus says, I am the Lord. I am the way. And on this way, it is my way or the highway. Right? There's your binary choice again. 
So it's a narrow way, it's a confining way, and it's also a difficult way. Jesus said that in verse 14. He said, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, he indicated the sort of experience that he anticipated would be normative for his disciples back in the conclusion to the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. The New King James there has rejoice and be exceedingly glad. It's it's one of the big glad words. Rejoice and be very glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, he's being rhetorical, not sarcastic, but I'm going to say rhetorical. He's saying, you know, it's, it's a great thing when people start persecuting you and reviling you for being a Christian on my account, right? I mean, if people are just persecuting you because you're mean and nasty, that's, that's on you. There's no particular benefit to that. That's why Jesus says, on my account. He says, it's actually a great thing if people are being mean to you and reviling you and excluding you and persecuting you on my account because you are a believer. That's actually a great thing. Way to go. Woohoo! Right? Blessed are you. He's saying, because that actually is a very good indicator that you are, in fact, on the narrow road that leads to life. Many are those who've walked that road before you, and that's what happened to them. So, blessed are you indeed. The road that leads to heaven is narrow, it is confining, and it is hard. Jesus never promised it would be anything else. He said, time and again, in the world you will have tribulation. It's a narrow way, it's a hard way, it's a confining way. And as a result, few are those who travel on it, at least as compared to the road that leads to to destruction. That's your other option. So let's take a look at that now. Verse 13, Jesus says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Well, obviously then Jesus is saying that the way that leads to destruction is the majority way. It's the way that looks easiest and most profitable to the most people. It's the way of the crowd as opposed to the way of the cross. And it is the path that leads to eternal damnation. In short, Jesus is saying that if you want to be a Christian, if you want to enter the celestial city, then you have to be content with the fact that you will not be part of the crowd. You will not get to travel with the herd. Martin Luther wanted to press that home on his people. He said here, This a Christian must know. So that's the Martin Luther equivalent of verily, verily, I say unto thee. Right? This a Christian must know. It's not optional content. So lean in. This a Christian must know, and he must be prepared for it so that he does not allow himself to be hindered or vexed if the whole world lives otherwise. And he must by no means adapt himself to the course of the mass. You prepared for that? That's a part of what it means to be a Christian. But that is something that we haven't had to think about here in the West, here in Canada, for a very long time, if, if ever. Certainly here in North America, if ever. North America is a very interesting place. It's a weird place, historically speaking. 
The, uh, our American cousins down south have their founding narrative of all the pilgrims crossing over on the Mayflower. Do you remember that? Apparently, according to legend, there were only two books on the Mayflower. I think I've told you this before. Uh, anyone want to guess what the first book was? The Bible. Absolutely, the Bible. Anyone want to guess what the second book was? Pilgrim's Progress. Obviously, I've told you that before, or you're just exceptionally smart. I'm at that stage in my life where I can tell the same joke twice in a day and still laugh pretty loud each time. So <laughs> anyway, yeah. So uh, North America is an interesting place. It was, it was founded in terms of its European heritage. It was founded by Christians fleeing state churchism in Europe, looking for a place where they could practice their, by and large, evangelical faith in peace. Here in Canada, our founding narrative also uh, is deeply Christian at the root. Have you ever taken a tour of the Parliament buildings in Ottawa? Have you ever noticed, looked up and seen all the Scripture verses in the, in the door archways, in the ceiling, and on, on the walls? It's an incredible experience. It'd be hard to swing a cat in the Parliament building and not hit a Bible verse, which, by the way, I've never tried, and I'm not suggesting that, that, that you do either. I'm just saying there are Bible verses everywhere carved into the stone of that building. Many, if not most, of the fathers of confederation were committed Christians. That was then, and this is now. Christians in this country used to be part of the crowd, but the crowd, by and large, has drifted away over the last several decades. In fact, things are are worse than that. It's not just indifference. We experienced that a lot over COVID, right? We experience, we, if you didn't know this before COVID, you figured out over COVID that the government has forgotten that we exist. They would, they would have a press conference and they would talk about how these new regulations appeal, or, or, you know, apply to restaurants and movie theaters and casinos. And then you're like, you know, there's like 10 million of us, right? And then like three days later, they'd be like, oh, and churches. For anyone who still goes to church, you can do, you know, do this, this, and this, and this. So certainly during COVID, we discovered that, that we are somewhat marginalized. But it's actually worse than that. According to a recent Angus Reid survey conducted this past spring, the vast majority of, Christ- or of Canadians no longer see any positive role or contribution for religion in this country. Only, only 30% of Canadians said they viewed any type of religion as beneficial to the country. And listen to this, as the Winnipeg Free Press reported, when asked which religion was more beneficial or negative, respondents named evangelical Christianity as the most damaging, followed by Islam and Catholicism. You hearing that? The crowd isn't with you anymore, my friends. In fact, they have become quite hostile towards you. Are you ready for that? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm asking you that as your pastor. Are you ready for that? Young people, you're here today probably because your, your mama made you come, told you no lunch for you unless you come to church, or, or, or maybe you, you came to hang out with your friends. That's great. We're glad you're here. But I got a question for you. Are you ready to follow Jesus in the face of the hostility of the crowd. You need to decide that in a way that my parents didn't and my grandparents didn't. But you do. Are you thinking about that? 
Are you prepared for the fact that you will almost certainly face mockery and verbal abuse from your classmates and professors at university if you persist in the Christian faith? Are you ready for that? Are you prepared for the fact that you will almost certainly face employment discrimination if you refuse to get on board with the new sexual and gender consensus in the culture? If you won't fly the flag, if you won't wear the shirt, if you won't contribute to the office group gift for the same-sex couple, if you won't call him her, if you won't play the game and mouth the platitudes that are required, you will pay a heavy price in the workplace and in the public square in the years and decades that lie ahead. Some of you are paying that price already. There are young people in this church who have left their employment because of these very issues. Are you prepared for that? See, we're going back to the way it used to be, and we're going fast. The wind has shifted, the tide has turned, and many who were here with us in the heyday have abandoned this road under pressure. Ask anyone my age. When when Christ followers my age get together, we almost always now end up talking about all our friends from high school who have walked away from the faith. Friends who were with us in Christian club. Friends who walked down the aisles with us at the altar call for the crusade. Friends who went on the mission trip with us. Friends who had front row seats with us at the Petra concert, right? Who haven't darkened the door of a church now in years. Who don't identify as Christians any longer. Who haven't cracked a Bible or said a prayer in decades. And we started out as a huge, huge crowd. Now we feel like the last men and the last women standing. My generation is the generation of apostasy. Young people, your generation is the generation of decision. You know what you're getting into. Nobody told me this when I was 17. Nobody told me that 90% of the people in this crowd I was walking with would walk away before the age of 50. Nobody told me it was going to be hard. Nobody told me that I would one day, could one day lose a job or be mocked. I mean, let me give you a quick just picture of how different high school was for me. In grade 13 OAC, by the way, just using those phrases tells you how long ago this was. Grade 13, he's not very good at counting. Um, in, In grade 13 for my OACs, I did almost all my OACs on Christian topics. In uh, World Issues, by the way, remember the OAC World Issues? I did uh, Biblical Prophecy, Yesterday's Answers to Tomorrow's Problems. In Sociology, I did God's Model for the Christian Family. That one was interesting. Um, And then in OAC Literature, I did the Bible more than just literature. And you know how many negative responses I got from my schoolmates? Zero. In fact, I just got known as the Christian kid at school, and then anybody who had problems or blah, blah, blah would just call me. I had people call me out of the blue. I didn't know them. You're like, hey, you're that Christian kid who reads the Bible, right? I'm like, yes, and you are? And that was the world I grew up in. Nobody, nobody told me how much it would change. But here's the thing, young people, you know now. You know. So what are you going to do? You know. The Christian way now is narrow, 
from the gate. It starts hard. It continues hard. And unless there is some kind of world-shaking great revival or new reformation, it is going to end hard for you. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared to believe God when everyone else around you is believing in something else? Are you prepared to believe what he says about who he is and who you are and how you can be saved through the person and work of Christ when everyone else around you disbelieves and in fact despises every single word of that sentence? Are you prepared to stand alone and to say with the Apostle Paul, let God be true and every man a liar? Because that's what it's going to be like for those who want to follow Jesus in the years and decades ahead. And that leads to our final question. Will only a few be saved? That, that sounds bad, Pastor Paul. Will only a few be saved? Well, I suppose on one level that question has already been answered. Jesus said, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And yet in the parallel passage that we read in the Gospel of Luke, when somebody asked him a follow-up question, he says, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So which is it? Is is it few or, or is it many? I think the answer is both. It is few in the sense that few people from every culture will make the decision to follow Christ, but it is many in the sense that those few people will eventually be found in every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth, such that at the end, there will be a great myriad of people beyond what anyone could ever number or count, crying out in glory, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I think it's both. It's like Noah's Ark in a sense, isn't it? There there were many animals on the ark, but only a few from each species. But enough, by the grace of God, to seed and start a whole new world. Will you be part of it? That's where Jesus puts the emphasis. The guy in Luke 13 asks him the same question we're asking. He says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Right? He's, he was hearing the same teaching that we're hearing, and so his mind goes exactly where our mind goes. But look at where Jesus goes. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. By the way, doesn't that also sound like Noah's Ark? Remember, God shut the door. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. So Jesus says, don't worry. Don't don't worry about how many will enter in. You just make sure that you enter in. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Listen, my friends, this is, this is what we were talking about two weeks ago. Jesus isn't introducing any new content in this concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount. That's not what you do in a conclusion. In a conclusion, you don't introduce new content. You double down on things you've already said. That's what Jesus is doing here. He, he already said, ask, seek, knock. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. He already told them, keep on knocking. Keep on walking. 
He told them to carry on. He told them to persevere. Listen, my friends, in the decades to come, we are going to come to an experiential knowledge of what John Bunyan talked about when he said that the Christian life is a war. Now, that feels like a metaphor to us, and of course it is a metaphor. You remember uh, the scene from Pilgrim's Progress that we talked about two uh, weeks ago where um, Christian is in the house of interpreter and he's shown a series of visions that describe the nature of the Christian life. And in one of those visions, he saw uh, a castle that represents uh, the celestial city. It was beautiful. He saw people dressed in gold walking around and he wanted to go and enter in. But there was a sort of a valley between and a, and a narrow door, and there were armed guards outside the door. And so it looked dangerous. And he saw a bunch of people milling around, kind of, you know, hemming and hawing. I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. And there was a, a man signing out swords. And the bold man went up to the man at the table, and he said, put my, down, my name down. And he took up a sword, and he ran down the valley, and he hacked his way through the guards of the door, and he entered through the narrow gate. And immediately, he hears the words, come in, come in, eternal glory, you shall win. And Christian says, I know what that means. It's a metaphor. It, it means you have to be willing to press through. The Christian life is a war. You have to be willing to run the gauntlet. Remember, the, the armed guards are actually on the master's payroll. Their swords are real but dull. Their job is merely to dissuade all those whose love is cold and whose faith is fickle. So that's what perseverance is. Perseverance is pressing through a variety of trials and tribulations because you believe, because you love, because you see. And do you see? Your sight, your vision of the kingdom will be tested over the coming years and decades. Your love will be tested. It's hard to love in a time of apostasy. Do you remember Jesus said that? He said, and the love of many will grow cold because so many fall away. It's easy to hate Christians who are failing and blowing it and getting wrapped up in scandals, isn't it? It's easy for your love to grow cold. Your sight will be tested. Your love will be tested. Your faith will be tested. It's hard to believe when most of the people around you don't. Press through. God hasn't abandoned you. The world isn't spinning out of control. The plan has not gone off the rails. This is the plan. This has always been the plan. We are reading right now, Jesus 2,000 years ago, telling us that this is the plan, telling us that this is how things are going to go until he returns in glory. He says the gate is going to be narrow, the road is going to be hard, and few are those who will travel on it. The Christian life is a war, my friends, and you will know that to be true in the years and decades ahead. Now, it is a war you may bleed in, it is a war you may die in, and it is a war you can run away from, but if you wake up every day and you strap on your shield and you take up your sword and you put one foot in front of the other, then it is a war that you can never lose because he will hold you fast 
he will hold the fighters fast. No matter what comes, no matter what opposition we face, if you fight to follow Jesus, then he will hold you fast. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we need grace. We need grace to do keeping and fighting things. And so we pray that you would give it, that we would be built up in our most holy faith, that we would be made strong enough to press through all these obstacles that lie along the narrow way that leads to life. Oh God, give us grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.